All right, so quick overview of last week. Uh, we talked about what is poverty. This week we're talking about how to structure poverty eradication. Uh, it's not quite that dry. It'll be a little more interesting than that. Than that. Uh, eradication sounds like such a technical topic. It's, you're never, we're never ever gonna eradicate poverty. Well, what we can do is alleviate it where we come in contact with it. Uh, so week one, poverty, we defined it as broken relationships between yourself and God, creation, others, or again, again, back with yourself. So when the definition becomes about relationships uh, through to yourself, others, and creation, and God, uh, it becomes a more easily fixable problem, uh, and it also but also becomes a harder to problem to fix because now you're fixing relationships, not stuff. Uh, the secular view is that each of these relationships you can fix independently. Uh, and that's where you'll, you'll see a lot of uh, push for, I said, social justice or push for maintaining the environment uh, or uh, psychology, psychiatry, you know, fixing your relationship with yourself. Uh, the biblical view that we're discussing is that you really have to fix your relationship with God and through your relationship with God is where all these other relationships come, come into play. Uh, so poverty alleviation is a ministry of reconciliation and moving people closer to glorifying God in their relationship with themselves, creation, and others. And if you keep coming back to that as you talk about this, it gives you some clarity. And this is, if you understand this slide, this is week one, this also gives you the core of how you go about structuring poverty eradication. Yourself to God to others self-creation. And so inside of that is where you see a lot of the ministries that arrive. Uh, evangelism is redefining, reconciling the relationship of yourself to God. There are, you know, if you think back you know, 1950s, 1940s, 1930s, 1830s, 1820s, they would send evangelists to foreign countries. And their job was to do this. But part of their issue was that's all they did was this. And then you'll, you'll see the rise in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and the early 2000s of uh, what I call single specialty poverty eradication efforts. Uh, a uh, one that jumps to mind, Tom's or a great shoe. Uh, what Tom's does is every shoe you buy, they give a shoe away. And so that is a, uh, here in the resources area to creation. Uh, we're gonna talk about why that may not be the world's best way to go about it. Uh, but you'll, you'll see a lot of that. But to really get into poverty eradication, you have to be holistic. You have to approach the entire person, and you, you can't give stuff away without talking about how that person relates to God. Because if you do that, you just create new and improved ways for people to uh, lord over people. If you give shoes away, the people that control 
the giving away of the shoe, just, you just empowered them to have more power over other people. And so you just made the people that don't have shoes situation even worse. Uh, so part of that, you have to approach this not as individual pieces, but as this entire uh, uh, a holistic approach through God, through to the other parts. All right, today, stages of poverty eradication. When you put the last slide and this slide together, you, you start understanding how things work or why things don't work in the poverty eradication world. Uh, this, this is courtesy of uh, Brian Feichert in uh, When Helping Hurts. He's the one that kind of came up with this concept. Uh, and then I read it probably eight to ten years ago, and then once I read it, I realized, oh, he, re he really has got a grasp of something. Uh, this works, this uh, stages work if you're talking about an individual. It works if you're talking about a people group. It works if you're talking about a country. Uh, it also works, this, we're also about to segue into uh, a parenting class. This also works for parenting, uh, for, for your children, for your parents, for your siblings, whatever. Uh, there's a baseline. You're moving along at a baseline. What, what it, that baseline varies tremendously whether you're talking about someone in the United States, uh, someone in Ghana, someone in China, but they're at a baseline. A crisis occurs and they drop below their baseline. Uh, the easiest way to look at this is, uh, let's take the tsunami that happened in, uh, was it 2012? 2011? That, that, that no, uh, the Indonesian one. 2005, five. It was, it was Christmas. See, time flies when you're having fun. Uh, th that's a really easy one to do. Uh, there was a crisis. Christmas morning, a tsunami comes in, boom, everything is gone. How do you respond to that? There are three stages. Uh, you have a relief stage, you have a recovery stage, and you have a developmental stage. This also, so for in a tsunami that works, this also works uh, for someone who's on the street in Nashville, who's homeless. At some point in time, they, they weren't born homeless. At some point they were in a productive relationship and a housing, a crisis ensued of some sort. They then required relief and then they requ require recovery and development if they're ever going to get off the street. So, it, like I said, it works for an individual, it works for a people group. First stage of poverty eradication is relief. It's relief, recovery, development. And it, it's one of those, it's the mantra you need to memorize. Relief, recovery, development. And try to decide where are we in poverty eradication. Relief. It should be immediate because the tsunami, if you have no food and you have no water, you have about 48 hours to do something. You can go with food a lot longer. If you're North American, we can go with food like weeks. Uh, but you got to have water. 
Uh, and so relief has to occur really quickly. Relief should be temporary because they had water beforehand. It's just a matter of we need to figure out where their water went and let's fix it. They had food beforehand. Let's figure out how, where their food went and let's fix it. Relief is almost always done by outsiders because if you were, because if you're in Indonesia, all your stuff just washed away in the tsunami. So you don't have the ability as an insider to fix this. Relief should be seldom because there's not that many tsunamis around. Now when there's a tsunami, you better have some relief available. But if there's not a tsunami, you don't need to be doing relief. And relief is almost always stuff. We talked about last week how we as North Americans tend to define poverty eradication by stuff, by money, by clothes, by things that we, we give to people. Relief is things because if you need, if you're in a, if you're in the tsunami, you better have some food. Someone better be bringing you a tent at some point, otherwise it's gonna get really hot in Indonesia. Uh, there needs to be food and there needs to be equipment to start rebuilding your infrastructure. That's relief. Next stage is recovery. The difference between relief and recovery is you start to have to make assessments. I mean, going back to our, the, the Indonesia thing, it was pretty clear that you're gonna need food, water, shelter. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're sending them uh, MREs from the military or you've got you know stuff, uh, ramen noodles from Costco that you packed up and shipped over there. I mean, food's food, you gotta eat. But once you start getting into the recovery phase of poverty eradication, you have to start making assessments. You gotta say, what are we doing? Who are we doing it with? And what do they really need? Uh, recovery tends to be intermediate term. You need local participation. This is no longer me flying in and dropping uh, water to the Indonesians. Uh, it needs to be equitable and then at this part you start training the leaders. A great example of the difference between relief and recovery, uh, Rwandan genocide, 1994. Uh, the Hutus attacked the Tutsis, killed between 500,000 and a million, no one's really sure. Uh, there were, in one of the small villages, there was, uh, Rwanda uh, is one of the few places in Africa that speaks French. So everyone's name is French. There was a villager named Felipe who just prior to the uh, Rwandan uh, genocide had gotten into chicken ranching. So he had saved his money up and gotten hens. And so he was raising chickens and raising eggs and he was starting to make a, a pretty good living well, relative for Rwanda, of selling eggs. And he was starting to do some development and getting himself stepping up the ladder. The genocide occurred. 
he was luckily untouched. His family was untouched. However, there was a very large American church that decided they needed to help the Rwandans. And so because they had no assessment, uh, they had no one on the ground, they said, what can we send them that helps them? And so somehow they got in their mind they needed eggs. And so they sent, over a period of six to eight months, they sent airplane loads full of eggs to this guy's village. What happened to his chicken farming, his egg farming? He was done, right, because they, they gave away the eggs. He was selling his eggs. They gave away the eggs. I mean, the church was trying to do well. They said people were hungry. They thought people were hungry. They, and so they said they shipped eggs. And so they started giving the eggs away. And so pretty soon he couldn't buy feed for his chickens. So he started selling his chickens to the people because he couldn't feed them. And then about eight months into the free egg giveaway, the church in America decided that they had had enough eggs and they quit sending them. So what happened next? No chickens, no eggs, that's right. Then the people in his village got really hungry because they should have been doing recovery, they were doing relief. And so all they managed to do because they didn't have an assessment, they did not have any local participation, uh, and they weren't looking long term, they totally wiped out the infrastructure that fed the village. <laughs> then they left. By the way, the same thing is happening to Dr. Vanderpool right now in Haiti. I don't know if y'all know live beyond Dr. Vanderpool's mission there, but for the same reason, the American government sends subsidized eggs to Haiti. Poultry farming is one of the few things that these folks really could do that would be successful and sustainable but they can't get it off the ground because the eggs are free. It's crazy. They, they have to get so creative. What are we going to do to employ these people? Right. They could be employed feeding themselves. Instead, we're feeding them and there's no jobs. So that, that is a, a great example of, once again, relief recovery. Yeah. The difference between recovery and development is you're looking at a uh, time frame. <clears throat> development occurs once you've got whatever your people group or the individual back to their baseline. At that point, you start looking and say, what can we do to prevent this from happening again? That's where we get back into reassessment. It's, you, you, sa you save a life here. You start rebuilding what was there before, but you have to do some assessment and you have to have lots of local participation. As you move across the spectrum, this is outsiders, outsiders plus local, a lot of local and a little bit of outside. Once again, Parenting 101, this is a two-year-old. Your two-year-old needs lots of help. This is a 10-year-old. Your 10-year-old needs some help, but he can put his clothes on and he can get a bath. He may not wash all the parts of his body, but it works. 
This is a 20-year-old. 20-year-olds need guidance. They don't need someone to call them at 7 in the morning and go, hey, time to get up and go to school. You can't treat it a 20-year-old like you treat a 2-year-old. And the same thing in poverty eradication missions. You can't treat development like you're treating relief. Those are two, these are three very distinct functions of poverty eradication. So also in recovery, a lot of that um, based on um, who you're trying to help and their knowledge, uh, what happens, what, what works in the industry and national will not typically work in Honduras. And Honduras is much different than Rwanda. And so you know, even in the best efforts, we come in and say, we have all the that's where the concept of assessment and reassessment a lot of times works get started someone made an assessment at one point in time and they started doing something and it worked otherwise they wouldn't continue to do it but things changed and they didn't reassess or they didn't re-reassess We, we talked about that a little bit last week, and we had a question last week about what, what's governmental, what's better done by governmental sources, and what's do, better done by individual sources. Uh, before I get to this, we'll go back to that. Hey, Jeff. Yes. Just parenting 101, it's not necessarily the two-year-old. It's, you know, at any age, the, the crisis. Um, right, the cri crisis can occur. We cannot stay at the relief age relief stage um, forever. We have to get to recovery and development and we can't leave our child always at the relief stage. That, that's correct. I mean, that, that works for individuals, it works for families, it works for uh, people that you try to recover on the street, it works for people groups, it works for countries. Uh, exactly what you talked about. What does the government do really, really, really well? Relief. Because it's a matter of scale. If there is a uh, tornadoes, what you know the government uh, does that really well because they've got prepositioned people, they've got stuff because this is primarily a stuff problem. They have, we've got the military that uh, has water purification, and so you know one of the things we did is we responded to uh, Hurricane Katrina. When you went down there, the military was all over doing water purification because first thing you need is water. So the government is really good at relief. The problem is the government's really good at relief. And when they pass laws, they're really good at relief. And that's what we talked about last year. If you look at, last week, if you look at uh, the war in poverty and a lot of the programs that they set up, what they set up was relief. Relief works when you're in a crisis. Relief works short term. If you go relief long term, you create dependency. Uh, yes? Two things. One, how practical is it to compare what's going on in third world nations to, like you said, to what's going on in the inner cities in America? That's the first question. The second question is kind of a question of the comment. 
Steve Perry runs something called Capital Threat. Uh, it's a charter school in the, on the East Coast. He's run a series of Sean Combs, AKA Diddy, AKA Puppy, is about to fund uh, one of his new charters. And one of the things is he's taking kids that are three grades levels behind. And now most of these kids are going to either Ivy League schools or prim uh, PWIs, primarily white institutions, that's very hard to get into. One of the reasons that it works, though, is because, in my opinion, is because Perry's black. Perry, Perry, when you talk about the reassessment stage, what I've observed, a lot of times big institutions or big white churches tend to want to help in these situations, but they never have African-Americans in the assessment stage or people that they're trying to help in the assessment stage, so it kind of gets lost in translation. It's here, because exactly what we said out in the back. It's really hard for me to go to Malawi and understand the economics of the farmer in Malawi because our economic system is totally different. I have to sit down and talk with them and say, how does this work? I've, I've got to learn. I've got to create a relationship with them. Same thing in the inner city. It's, we don't need to be doing relief, we need to be doing development. And I love this quote, this is Brian Feichert again. One of the biggest mistakes that North American churches, us, make is applying relief in situations when it's rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. And that, and so the question is, if, if that's such an obvious thing, why does relief continue to happen? Yes? Um, could it be because the North American churches are so far removed from the baseline of the people in crisis in the first place that, that there's, there's a huge gap between the locals and the people that want to help? That, that, that's a very important point. It's when you go to help people, you have to understand what's the problem. And that's the one thing that as North American churches that, actually, let's get personal, as a rich, suburban, primarily white, highly educated church, our problems, it's sometimes hard for us to relate to other problems. Right, and that gets back to the whole concept of what is poverty. Poverty is ruptured relationships. We ha Brentwood has tremendous amounts of poverty. It doesn't have thing poverty. We have relational poverty. Uh, when I go to Guatemala, which is a village-based, clan-based system, they have tremendous amounts of thing poverty. They have tremendous relationships. If someone gets sick in the village, the whole village comes around together and says, how are we gonna solve this problem? That doesn't happen. In fact, in America, our problem is the exact opposite. We're, we're all in our little houses. Uh, I mean, my wife is here. For those of you who don't know my wife, Jane, raise your hand. Jane does home, she's a home health nurse. One of the biggest issues in healthcare in America today is there's nobody around to do the simple stuff. 
the, the stuff that you used to have that you were, you were around your family, your family would take care of you. We're so mobile that a lot of people don't have family around, they don't have relationships around them that can take care of them when they're sick. Or if they just need a little bit of help. And that, that's the poverty of North America. The poverty of North America, the poverty of Brentwood is relational. We got stuff galore. We have significant relational problems. And we also have, you can get into, we have some creation problems because we like, we like stuff and we, we waste stuff. Uh, but that's one of our biggest issues is poverty here is relational. It's different. There's poverty everywhere because we, we live in a fallen world and there is sin everywhere. So we are not perfect. And so you have to understand what your poverty is and how do you go about trying to alleviate that poverty. Yes? I also think that it's very mm -hmm. difficult for a suburban church like Otter Creek, some of these other places in Brentwood to realize just how different we are even as Christians. Because when you talk about the poverty of Brentwood, if you were to take some of these people in the, in the inner city and you would have chat and they said, man, you know, your problem is your dad's not going to be able to relate to you. Um, you're going to have some self-issues. You're going to have some self-esteem issues. You're going to have some self-image problems. They'd be like, man, I'll take that tomorrow. Because when I look at the issues and I hear problems with my contemporaries that happen to be white and out of these environments, I'm like, man, that ain't no problem. I've had problems. My dad was on dope. I mean, that was a real problem. You know, so when I hear these other issues, but then if I look at that situation and I had, my father had been in the home, uh, my, my parents had been married, and I had to go through something like a divorce, that would be devastating. So it, it's very difficult, I think, for us to see. Because the one thing that I've liked about Otter Creek is I've been able to see the humanity beyond the affluence. And I'm hoping that I'm able to reflect that too. But it's very difficult because we are still, because of culture, very, very different. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we have a, in our family, we have a thing called first world problems that you get complaints about. Like, for instance, my personal favorite all-time first world problem is I can't stream YouTube on my phone while I'm going to the bathroom. The Wi-Fi is not good enough <laughs> while I'm in the toilet. Wow. I'm going like, that's a first world problem. Uh, and yeah, it, there are times that, like at work where people come, with, come to me with problems and I just kind of, you kind of shake your head and go like, do you have food to eat? Yeah. Do you have a nice car? Yeah. Do you have a house? Yeah. Do you have people that love you around you? Yeah. Has anyone shot at you with a machine gun in the last, say, 24 hours? No. All right. You really don't have a problem. I mean, you know, my, my problems at work are I don't like the shift I'm on. The amount of money that I'm paid is not enough. I mean, yes, I'm paid at the top 0.1% of world earners, but I want more money. I mean, I deal with that all the time. Of you know, my house, I, I we laugh. The, the house, my house is not big enough. I need to upgrade my house. I'm going like, you live in six thousand square feet. There's two of you, and you have a room for your piano. You have a room for all your firearms, and your room for have all your Barbie collectibles. <laughs> but my house is not big enough. Uh, those. Most, a, a lot of people talking about, that's their everyday life. How many of us have ever been to the welfare office with somebody? How many of us have ever been to the nursery room at 3 o'clock in the morning just to witness what most, a, a lot of people are talking about, that's their everyday life. How many of us have 
How many of us have had to, I tried driving at bus to inner city on Monday nights. Go down at 10 o'clock on Charles E. Davis Boulevard and witness and talk about mothers who have four kids that are, you know, 19 or 20. Uh, you know, uh, why, why? Because that's messy and that's hard and it takes time. Yep. And it's a whole different paradigm than writing a check Perfect. What, what, so why do churches do relief? Because... Well, before we get into that, yeah, just right. because um, I, when I first heard this, um, I sometimes the idea between relief and recovery, they sounded really similar to me. And so, like, the stages weren't... Like, I didn't quite understand what went in what stage. So if anyone else is feeling like that, uh, there's a different goal for each stage. So the stage, the goal for the relief stage is to stop the crisis. Your goal is to stop this downward spiral um, and that release stage is really short and then the goal of the recovery stage is to bring you back to baseline so if you don't understand you're like what stage am I in is it are you trying to stop a downward spiral or are you trying to get back to baseline and then the point of development is to raise that baseline over time so those are sort of the three because recovery and development can also seem very similar like what stage am I in so it's not like it's a very distinct, you know, for the first week, we shall be in relief, and then we shall move to recovery. But if you sort of ask yourself, what is my goal, you can sort of figure out what stage you're in. Yes. Did you say what you meant by equitable in this context on the first slide? No, I'm going to get to that in a minute. But the question is, did I talk about what is equitable? Uh, and, well, actually, I'll, I'll, I'll do that now. Uh, equitable, because historically, a lot of missions, uh, you know, uh, well, let's take uh, homeless relief down, downtown. A lot of missions would say, you can come in, but you have to be, we're going to give preference to, uh, we'll pick on the Church of Christ, since we're Church of Christ. If you're Church of Christ, you can get in the door faster than if you're not. This happened a lot in overseas missions. If you wanted health care, you better be Catholic because that's prior to about the 1950s, that's the only people overseas were Catholics. So the Catholics got, you got preferential care. So when the Catholic hospital came to town, how many Catholics were in every village? Everybody. Because if you were Catholic, you couldn't get health care unless you're Catholic. So man, I'm Catholic, I'm Catholic today. Uh, and that's uh, and so that that that's what we talk about equitable. Equitable means you have to, if you're going to do relief, you got to relief everybody, relief, relieve everybody, not relief. Uh, like if you're passing out water, you don't look at them and go, "Let me see, you got the cross on? Okay, boom. You you, you got the sickle on, and not not so much. You go to the end of the line. If you're doing relief, you got to relieve everybody. You have to be fair." And then as you move into recovery and development, remember all this has to be done in a holistic viewpoint of we're trying to be, we're trying to bring people back into relationship with God primarily. So you have to be an, ac an accurate reflection of, of God and Jesus to these people. So that's why being you have to be equitable because you know, Jesus didn't say, you know, on the Sermon on the Mount, you know, sorry, if, if, you're, if you're a Pharisee, you're in, good. Sadducees, not so much. He said, you know, 
I, I've, I've come to call everyone to me. So equitable means you've got to bring everyone in. Now that does not mean that as you do recovery and development that you're not discriminatory. Because as you start to recover and develop, you're going to ask the people to do things. They have to do those things to stay in. Uh, a uh, health town I'm involved with in Guatemala has the ABC program that Magda Sherman started. To stay, basically what you do is you get uh, health care, dental care, and you get food supplements if you stay in the program. But to stay in the program, you have to stay in school and you have to go to church. So that it is discriminatory in that thing. If you drop, if you quit going to church, you get kicked out of the program. But it, it's not, but people know that going in. So, but as we do development, you're gonna, you're gonna require more and more out of the people in your developmental program. It's not, you, not everyone is gonna make it in the door because some people don't want to, some are not gonna have the skills you're looking for, et cetera. Uh, so now back to what a church continue with relief. One, it's really easy. Uh, it's quantifiable. How many bottles of water did I deliver? How many meals did I fix? How many, uh, how many houses, if you're habitat, how many houses did we build last year? So a lot of that is very quantifiable. It gives you great stories. I mean, the story I was telling before class of flying into Haiti and dropping an anesthesia machine on the roof, those are great stories, and those are great fundraiser stories. You know, you talk about, yeah, here's what we did. Oh, yeah, man, I want to do that. Uh, and it's also very quick because it does not require investments of time, back to what Dave was saying. It does not require a lot of investments of time. Now, there are times when you need relief. Don't, don't hear me wrong. There are times you have to do relief. And in relief, it's going to be this. But if you're spending 90% of your time on relief and 10% on development, you've got the proportions wrong. What? Yeah. Oh, question? Yes. Well, the, the reality is people don't change until they're in a crisis. Uh, you don't change, we see it all the time in the third world, is as long as I'm healthy, I don't care that much about your church. When I'm sick and the, and the clinic's coming to your church, I'm showing up. And then you, we use that in order to talk to them about Jesus. And then a lot of people realize as you move along into that recovery and development phase, they will end up becoming Christians about that. But it's the same thing, yes, crisis, 
people only change when there's crisis. Because if there's no crisis, why do I change? I don't need to change. Everything, everything's fine. Right, and that's to fix that's relational. Yes. It seems like the tenor of this whole conversation is the idea that people who are in poverty don't already know Jesus. And I feel like that's problematic because I, I live in the inner city, I live in North Nashville, and most of the folks I know know and understand what it's like to be to be crucified to some extent way better than I do. They know about suffering, they know about not having control of being I apologize if you, you got that uh, out of this. That, that, that is not true. The church, got, you know, if you look around the world, where, where's the largest church, where's the largest percent of group of God-fearing people? Either in Africa or China. They know more about it than we do. But what I'm trying to say is as you go into these relationships, you have to take, you have to do it as a God-disciple. You can't do it just as I'm here to technically. Uh, I'm here to build you. Let's go to Africa. I'm here to build you a well and leave. It, there's a relational part of that, and you have to do it as a disciple of God. You can't just come in and say, you know, I, I've got my blinders on. I'm just here to fix this, and then I'm out. Uh, that that sometimes works in, in relief. That works a little bit. But once you get into recovery development, you have to be a, it's a holistic approach. And part of it, it's, it's approaching the people that you're working with where they're at. There are people that are, that know a lot about God and they have other issues, social justice, educational, self-worth, you know, as we talked about, there's a lot of depression. And so you, you through, the, by strengthening the relationship and the discipleship with God is where you start fixing those other problems. And in doing that, you actually fix a lot of your own problems because we all have ruptured relationships. And so by serving with others is where you fix a lot of those. Yes? Did, did that address your issue? Was that sort of? Yeah, it's it, like everything it's been seeming like we've got to evangelize people and that's based on the assumption that the person is not or doesn't already know Jesus. And there are plenty of poor people well, who know Jesus. Right. When, I, when I say evangelize, what I mean is more disciple. It's not, I need to introduce you to God. I, I, what I want to say is, this is why I'm doing this, because I'm a disciple of God's. And then you, you have a, a place where you're, you can have a discussion with them. If I go in, uh, Jay and I did a Habitat home several years ago and, uh, in uh, Taos, New Mexico. And they said, don't be too Christian when you go in there because these guys are uh, 
the Taos Pueblo Indians, they don't want to hear about Christ. They just want a house. And it was kind of like, uh, how, you're asking me not to be who I am, why I build this house. And so, I mean, that, that's the, the kind of attitude sometimes you see is, you know, I'm going to do this one particular thing. I'm going to fix this one thing. What I'm saying is that you have to come at it from a, you have to come at it from a position of brokenness yourself, that I was broken, I'm redeemed because of my relationship with God, and I have to bring that out as we do this. It may be that the people that I'm working with know God. I love to inherit the whole earth and lose his soul. Yes. So I think in this drawing, um, the literal rubber meeting the road is the intersection there of baseline to the development. And what Gail said, it's much easier on our own personal choose for ourselves to say, I'm back to my baseline. I'm good. I don't need somebody else telling me how I can be a better version of me. Now, we like to look around the world and tell everybody else. We can certainly see why your baseline needs to go up. You need this development. And I think the truth is, it's true for everyone, as you said. Every single person in this world has a, an opportunity for some kind of arrow there uh, going, trending upward, whether or not we decide to take advantage of it. But it does, we have to allow some other expert to be part of that, yeah. a mentor of some sort, a relationship of some sort, of someone we trust that, like, hey, there could be a better way for me to deal with this or this situation or this difficulty or whatever. Yeah, it is. I mean, that, and that's the thing is that once again, that's back to our po our primary poverty in North America is relational, uh, because we're we're not good at sharing our stuff. We're not good at sharing our cells, our problems. Uh, so as you go this week, our week two discussion because we're about out of time. Uh, week two discussion questions: Do I support any charities that are stuck in relief mode? Uh, and how can I change my mindset to focus less on relation on less on results and more on relationships? Because we're we're very task oriented. We like to get stuff done, and relationships, as you talk about, are messy. They're long term. It takes time, and sometimes it's hard to uh, quantify relationships. But that's how you actually change stuff over the long term, especially what, like Gail was saying, when you're in the development phase, it's all relationship. It's not task. It's how do you relation with people and how do you learn stuff from them? How do you teach stuff to other people and how do they teach stuff to you? Because none of us are perfect. I know it's going to be a shock. Uh, none of us are perfect. Uh, we all have weaknesses. Uh, all right, and I think we're out of time. Uh, so if you 
If you want to stay and talk, we're available to stay and talk. If you want to go to second service, it's time. <laughs> mm -hmm.